Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we will read verse 26 through verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. We began last week in Matthew's Gospel for our Advent series by considering together the promises of the Incarnation. And this morning I want to consider with you the person of the Incarnation, the person of the Incarnation from this portion, Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. Verse 26, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month, of course, is a reference to Elizabeth's pregnancy. She is now in the sixth month. So Gabriel is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Just thus far, the Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come to the preaching of your word, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would take the word and put it into our hearts and into our minds and bring about a great change within us that we might be like Mary who believed and yielded herself to the Lord. And so we commend ourselves now to you and ask for your help and your blessing. And to you be all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> now the angel Gabriel, as we read here in Luke chapter 1, has been sent from God. He is a messenger from God. He has come from heaven. And God has sent him to northern Israel, to the region of Galilee. A very famous region in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Jesus himself spent a lot of his life ministering in Galilee, walking around Galilee, even on the Sea of Galilee, growing up in Galilee in the city of Nazareth. And this city of Nazareth, of course, is not a, a great metropolis. It's just a small, insignificant 
poor village in northern Israel. What I like about this is that Gabriel uh, is not sent to the palace of Herod the Great to tell the news to the king of Israel. He is not sent uh, to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. He is not sent to Bethlehem, the city of David. He is not sent to any of those places, but he is sent by God to this obscure village that we know as Nazareth. In fact, you don't think, if I remember correctly, anything in the Old Testament about Nazareth. It's obscure, it's small, it's of no account. And to that city, and to a virgin, to a young maiden, a young girl, Gabriel, the angel of God, is sent. you notice in verse 27, sent to a virgin who is engaged, who is betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph. You remember last week, Joseph, when he finds out about Mary's pregnancy, so this account is first in line before we get to Matthew and Joseph's account. Joseph is going to discover that Mary's pregnant and because he's in the betrothal period, the engagement period, he is thinking about divorcing her quietly, putting her away. So here the text tells us that she is engaged, she is betrothed already to Joseph, and now the angel Gabriel is sent by God to her. And of course we recognize that uh, Joseph is called again of the house of David in the line of King David. So that Jesus, through Joseph of course, as we saw last week, has a legal claim to Israel's throne, but through Mary has a legitimate physical claim to David's throne as well. And Gabriel has come with a message. He is an angel. The angels of God are called messengers in the Bible. God gives them work to do. He sends them out and they go out and they deliver messages. And here we discover Gabriel, whom we read about in the Old Testament, delivering messages to Daniel himself in the Old Testament in the city of Babylon. So he's come with a message. Uh, that's a remarkable message, isn't it? It's a unique message. In fact, it is a message that will change the life of Mary forever. Will not only change Mary's life, but it will change Joseph's life forever. Their lives will be never the same. It will change Israel's life. And certainly John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, he has come to bring change. And that change is salvation in the human heart. He's come to deliver men and women, boys and girls, from their bondage, their slavery to their sins. So this is a message that is going to change the world. And you would think if it's a message to change the world, send it to the great cities. Send it to Rome. Send it to Athens. Send it to some great city where great good can come from it. No, God sends it to a young maiden through his messenger in an obscure place in northern Israel. And the unique thing about this message is quite simply that there's going to be a conception that is going to take place that is totally unique. It's never happened before, and never happened since. It's going to be unique because of the person. Now you know modern science can accomplish many things today, but it cannot produce the Son of God, of course. 
And so the difference is today uh, that what we have is just simply the advance of science or technology in medicine and such things where you can do certain things in a laboratory and in a test tube and so on. But this is unique because the person has already existed in eternity past as we saw from Matthew last week. Now that person who has always existed is coming into the world and taking to himself human flesh. God is coming into the world to take human flesh. So it's going to be a unique conception in the womb of Mary. Notice verse 31. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 35. Well, how will that happen? Verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So now we know what the message is. The message is that Mary is going to conceive in her womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. And in verse 35, it's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So that the Spirit, in a unique, miraculous, supernatural way, will overshadow Mary and her womb and bear there will be this conception that takes place. A conception that the Bible says is not by Joseph, not by any physical human being, but simply by God, the Holy Spirit. And this is what we call the incarnation, the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Even Mary's relative, notice verse 36, she has conceived in her old age. What a shock that was to Zacharias, when Gabriel said to him, your, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, the great John the Baptist. And of course, he, he struggled to believe such things, didn't he? The point, though, that I want to make and that the text makes this morning, if you will notice that Gabriel makes, that Luke records, is verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now what do we mean by that? Well, God can do anything. That's what we mean. But there is one thing God cannot do and He cannot sin. We all know that. Because if God can sin, He's no longer God. So God cannot sin. But God can do anything except sin and God does do as He pleases, uh, exactly as He pleases, as Psalm 135 and verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. So whatever pleases God, God does. And He can do it because He has the power and the authority to do it because He is God. By that, I discover since nothing is impossible with God, nobody can stand against God. Now there have been people throughout the centuries and time after time have tried to stand against God. Nobody can resist God because God is God. And we are his creatures and his creation. Nobody can stand against him. Nobody can resist him. Because he is the supreme governor of everything. He is the governor of the universe. He is the governor of yourself. He is the Lord, the God of everything. The only God. And it is this God who controls everything down to the minutest detail. To the movement of an atom to the wind blowing the blade of grass out there, to the little bird that hops and eats its food, finds a worm. It's God who accomplishes all of that because God governs all things. He is the master. 
He is the total, absolute sovereign of every single thing of all creation because He made everything, including He made you and He made me. He is, as Paul likes to say, the God in whom you live and move and have your existence or your being. You exist because God exists and God has deigned it that you exist because of who He is. And so we live because of God. We move because of God. This God whom the Bible describes as the possessor of heaven and earth. Who made the heavens and the earth. He alone, the Bible teaches us, is the fountainhead of all that is good. This God whom we call and know to be good. Do we not discover even in the life of Jesus, the Son of God, that He rules the winds and the waves, that then they threatened destruction upon the Sea of Galilee to the master fishermen like Simon Peter and James and John, as they are struggling, they say, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus rises up in the boat and says, Where is your faith? Be still, peace, and instantly the winds, the waves are ruled by the Son of God. That's God. That's the God who does these things. He alone is the only all-sufficient one. He alone is the only incomprehensibly majestic and glorious being that we say we love and worship. Infinitely powerful. Infinitely knowing. Sovereign. This is our God. This is whom you've come to worship this morning. This is who you've come to think about. This God. And if you've never thought about God like that, then listen to the Word. This is what God teaches uh, us through His Word. So I say to you, in light of that, it is this God with whom nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. And that's what Gabriel's going to reveal to Mary, isn't he? Something that is going to change her life forever that can only be orchestrated by God. That can only be brought about in her life, in her womb, by God himself. A startling, life-changing message from Gabriel that he's received from God himself. Now, Gabriel, you go and you tell this to Mary in the city of Nazareth. And that's what he did. I don't want you to miss how personal this God is. Because this is a passage that that though it can speak about the incomprehensibility of God, yet, yet this transcendent God is personal. He's Mary's God. He's Joseph's God. He's your God. He's my God. He's our God. You notice how Gabriel, verse 28, greets Mary. He says, the Lord is with you. Now what does she understand by the Lord? She understands all that the Old Testament says. Everything the Old Testament says about God, about the Lord, is that's the one who is bringing, uh, who's said to be with her by Gabriel in verse 28. Oh dear congregation, what privileges you have if you are a Christian this morning? That you can live your life in the presence of God. That the God of this creation dwells with His people. Isn't that at the heart of the gospel message, the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ? That I will be their God and they will be my people. I will dwell with them and they shall dwell with me. 
And we've begun, since we became Christians, we've begun to experience life with God, the presence of God, here and now. We know that when we get to glory, we shall experience the eternal presence of God forever and forever. But right now, we enjoy the presence of God because He promises that I will be with you and I will never leave you. So what privileges we enjoy? So when Gabriel says to Mary, the Lord is with you, That brings to her mind all the promises of the Old Testament that God made that I would be, or that He would be their God. And that's what Gabriel in the greeting says to her. What a privilege for this God who dwells in unapproachable light. This God whom no man has ever seen nor can see. This God is said to dwell with us, to dwell with His people, the eternal God. He's not an idol that you can create with your hand. There is no picture that you can make of Jesus or of God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. You shall make no images in the commandments of God. We don't make pictures of Jesus. We don't even know what Jesus looked like. There's a reason for that. Because we would be given to idolatry if we ever knew that. Let alone if we knew what Paul looked like or Isaiah looked like or anything like that. We would make idols of them and worship them. And so we are prohibited by the law of God to not make any images that resemble the likeness of God. Things in heaven, things on earth, things in the seas and such like. Can't do that. This is a God, then I say, who is this transcendent God yet who is so personal. Who has come to us in abundant Uh, variety, overflowing with grace, overflowing with goodness, overflowing with favor. In fact, look at verse 28, Gabriel says to Mary that she is, O favored one, O favored one, favored by God, chosen by God. And look at verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found acceptance with God. Now, how is anybody accepted by God? It's by grace. It's, it's based on the just justice of God, that God, as I was saying this morning here, that God remains just and justifies sinners at the same time because a substitute took our place, Jesus, on whom the wrath of God fell. So God can still be just because He has expended His wrath upon His Son, and He can still justify the sinner because Jesus took their sins. And so he justifies and he remains just. And those who are justified by faith can truly be said to those who have received the grace of God and therefore are favored. Because that's where the word comes from. The favor, the grace of God chosen by God. So here is God's sovereign work. Calling, choosing, converting, working in Joseph's life, Mary's life, and others and ourselves also. Little did Mary imagine, I think, that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which you will only discover, by the way, in verse 36, when the Holy Spirit tells, when God tells her that she has conceived, and she's now in the sixth month. So she doesn't know her own relative is now pregnant, because remember, the Bible says Elizabeth hid herself. She had been barren. And so she hid herself, didn't let anyone know. So even Mary was unaware of this until Gabriel reveals that her relative Elizabeth is now in the sixth month and is pregnant. 
Little did she imagine, therefore I say, that God would visit her. Is not God visiting us this morning through His Word? I mean, isn't that what you have done? You have come to worship Him. You have come to adore Him. You have come to praise Him. Why do you do that? Because you believe God is with you. And you have come to acknowledge who He is. And yet, in that acknowledgement, there is a blessing to be received, isn't there? That this God who promises to be with His people is not there as an abstract form, but is unique and personal and in the Spirit and brings such a blessing. Why is that, oh dear congregation, dear beloved one? Because nothing is impossible with God. That this God should make himself known to you and to me. The barren can conceive like Elizabeth. The virgin can conceive like Mary because nothing is impossible with God. Now if God can do such things for Elizabeth and for Mary, oh think of the ordinary things he does for you day in day out. Such blessings upon us. But you see, the real test for you this morning is do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you believe that this God that the Bible speaks of is personal, though transcendent, incomprehensible, yet has revealed himself in the person of his Son, in the Scriptures as we read them? Do you believe that God can do such things for you? Nothing is impossible with God. He changes lives, doesn't he? He's changed my life. He's changed your lives. So Luke chapter 1, these verses, 26 through 38, is a birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ from Mary's perspective. You remember last week, Matthew, when we looked at Matthew chapter 1, that's from Joseph's perspective. But now the angel comes to Mary, so this is from her perspective. When, when Gabriel spoke to Joseph, we believe it was Gabriel, when he delivered the message to, to Joseph, it was delivered in order to alleviate the concerns that Joseph had as a result of Mary's pregnancy. He thought she had been unfaithful to him. Until the angel tells him, oh no, what has happened to Mary is by the work of the Holy Spirit unique conception has taken place and the moment he learns in Matthew chapter 1 that Mary's pregnancy is unique by the Holy Spirit all concerns he ever had about divorcing her are completely removed because this is of God and this is not something sinful from Mary's side now you know what's unique is that the message Gabriel gave to Joseph is exactly the same message that Gabriel now delivers in verse 31 to Mary. You'll notice in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. When you read Matthew, of course, you discover you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why you call him Jesus, because that means Savior. So he's going to save his people from their sins. What does it mean to be a Savior? It means he forgives us. He forgives our sins. But not only did Gabriel tell Matthew, uh, tell Joseph in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus would be, save his people and be a Savior, but he would be, as Isaiah 7.14 says, the promised one who would come and be born by a virgin, he would be Emmanuel, God with us. So he's not only a Savior, but he's God. God is coming. God is in the womb of Mary. So what message does Gabriel have for Mary in Luke chapter 1? Firstly, in verse 31, 
certainly agrees with Matthew, right? Mary conceives in the womb, Mary bears a son, and Mary is to call his name Jesus. So now I want to consider with you the responses of Mary, because that's what's in the passage. What does Mary think? How does she react? How does she respond? Look at verse 29, first of all, in light of verse 28, the greeting by Gabriel, verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Well, what kind of greeting was it? Greetings. Or the Greek text says, Rejoice, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary did not regard herself as favored. Mary does not regard herself as privileged at this point. She doesn't regard herself as worthy to be called. She's troubled by being called a favored one. She is concerned by that. Verse 28. You'll notice what she says later on in verse 48. She says, from verse 46 and 7, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And if you go down to verse 52... He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. Mary regards herself as nothing, as lowly. Perhaps uh, she may have forgotten that. Oh, favored one, when Gabriel says that. She is poor. She's on the lowest rung of the social uh, standings. She has perhaps forgotten that God has regard for the lowly and for the humble. Listen to Job. Job says in Job 5, verse 11, God sets on high those who are lowly. Job 22, verse 29, God saves the lowly or the humble. Psalm 138, 6, For, the, for though the Lord is on high, He regards the lowly. Proverbs 29, verse 23, Those who are lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And don't you love that great message by the prophet Isaiah chapter 57 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite that's who God dwells with that's Mary she's lowly in heart she's contrite but perhaps she has forgotten that because she is concerned by this greeting. What do we mean by someone who's lowly or humbled? What do we mean by that in the Bible? We don't mean they just have a quiet spirit, <coughs> excuse me, or keep to themselves. And you might say they're a very humble person. That's not what we mean at all. No, by humility they are humbled because of their sin because of their guilt and isn't that every Christian every Christian is broken and contrite before God because of their sinfulness so Mary regards herself as a sinful person in fact she says in verse 47 she rejoices in God my Savior <coughs> so Mary is certainly no co-redemptrix with Jesus our Redeemer she is certainly not a savior herself. She is sinful and needs salvation like every one of us. So she regards herself as a sinful person. 
and in need of a Savior. Notice verse 47, 48. God is her Savior. He has looked on her as her servant. So she considers this first response and is troubled by it. Second, look at verse 34. Verse 34, of course, is in light of verses 31 through 33 about what this person that's to be born will be like. Mary says, how will this be? Verse 34, since I am a virgin. Oh, how unlike Zechariah's response, right? Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For my wife, sorry, for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You know what Zechariah is saying there to Gabriel? He says, I don't believe this. I don't believe what you're telling me. He's completely devoid of faith. He says, how can that be? I'm an old man. In fact, he has forgotten that he has been praying for this very thing with Elizabeth. That he would have a son. And now when God comes and delivers the message or gives the message to, Ab to Gabriel to deliver to him, he doesn't believe it. How can this be? I'm an old man. It's impossible. And Elizabeth's old. We're too old to have children. How can it be? Nothing is impossible with God. Right? That's how it can be. But he doesn't believe that. But Mary's response to Gabriel's message to the news of a unique conception is how is such a thing possible? I mean, how does conception take place without a husband? That's what Mary wants to know. How does conception take place if one is still virgin? Well, let me ask you, how can it take place? Nothing is impossible with God. God can do such a thing. It's as easy as saying, let there be light. And there was light. Right? It's as easy as that. God's creative word, his powerful word, he spoke and things came into existence out of nothing. He just spoke and they existed because of his creative power and his word. So to, for Mary to conceive in the womb is just the creative work and power of the Holy Spirit in bringing about that unique conception. Now if you ask me, is that mysterious? I say absolutely. It's worthy of worship, this God who can do such a thing. Because how can you explain it? Mary can't understand such a thing. So we must take note, I think, that in both Elizabeth's case and Mary's case, that the Holy Spirit is involved, that the power of the Spirit. But what's the difference between Elizabeth's conception and Mary's conception? Well, Elizabeth's conception the miracle of having a child in her own age is because God enabled Zechariah and her to have a child through normal physical relations so that she now will give birth later to John the Baptist but that's not the case with Mary there is no Joseph there is no man there is no husband there is just Mary and God working sovereignly in her womb to bring about this unique conception. So we might say that on the one hand, the, the conception of Elizabeth, of John the Baptist, is a physical thing, but of Mary is a spiritual thing. Miraculous. Supernatural. Doing that which nobody can do in the womb of Mary. So these responses that Mary gives, I think, are normal. How can you call me favored one? I'm nothing. And 
How will this be? Is just the natural inquiry of someone who doesn't understand how such physical thing would take place or come about. Normal questions, natural questions. But dear congregation, that's not what this message is about that Gabriel gives. It's not about the unique conception. That is glorious. That's the means which brings the person into the world. The conception is unique in and of itself, but this text doesn't focus on the conception. This text focuses on the person. The person to be born. The son to be born. Now listen, if Mary's conception is unique from God, then the son to be born is also unique and from God. There is no involvement of Joseph or anybody else. His conception is unique. In fact, verse 35 explains that so particularly and careful, right? Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how this conception is going to take place. And notice the result. For the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of of God. Now you know dear congregation, some of you have been Christians for a long time. You've been Christians for many years. I've been a Christian for more than 50 years. It's possible, you know, to become immune or insensitive or desensitized or dull to the stupendous beauty and majestic glory of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to come every year to Christmas time and say, oh well, what do we do at Christmas? We remember the birth of Jesus. Just like it's the same at Easter. You can go to Easter and people, people turn out at Easter to church. People turn out at Christmas to church. Why only at Christmas? And why only at Easter? What's wrong with them? What about the rest of the year and every other week? Why are those particular things? Well, they think there's something special in them. And there is. But do they really grasp the special? Because if they did, they'd be there till next week and the week after and the week after and the week after because they couldn't get enough of the Son of God, this Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's possible, you know, because of the repetition of these kinds of doctrines and ideas that we talk about among ourselves and that we fellowship, to become casual. Maybe to become even careless with them. But the, the incarnation is nothing less, think about this, the incarnation is nothing less than the Son of God, the second person of the glorious Trinity of God, taking human nature to himself and becoming a man, becoming flesh, like you and me this morning. Now think about that. God is spirit, dwells in unapproachable light, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet this Son in the Trinity says, I will go and do that work, you will do it, the Spirit of God, in the womb of Mary. Think of that. Think of Him, eternal, majestic, the Son of God. There's no one like Him. And He stoops down to the womb of Mary, humbles Himself in the glorious sense of the word, to take flesh, so that He can go to the cross, and that He can die on the cross as a man, representing man, because Adam failed. The man Adam, the first man. But not Jesus. Oh, he's coming. 
and his coming and his birth and his conception are going to be so unique that they enable him to go from the cradle to the cross to go from Bethlehem to Calvary to die in my place think of that, the son of God doing that for you, for me this morning he came from heaven to earth he came out of blazing pure light of glory that you cannot conceive like Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured before them and the Bible says they saw his glory and they hid themselves they were so afraid because he had revealed just a little bit of his glory isn't that what the Old Testament saints did when they saw the angel of the Lord and he reveals himself in his glory they hide their faces they tremble but now this Jesus to be born is the Son of God who has come to deliver us from our misery misery of sin to save us to give us life eternal life so that we can be like him and with him forever and ever from above history down into history this Jesus has come so much so that though he was in the form of God he made himself nothing taking upon himself the form of a servant and born in the likeness of man and being in the form of human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross the cross is the most important thing isn't it because <coughs> that's where Jesus makes atonement Jesus is not on the cross because the Pharisees succeeded in capturing him Jesus is not on the cross because Pontius Pilate said okay crucify him Jesus is not on the cross because King Herod decided well you're a threat to my throne so off with you no Jesus is not on the cross because of any of those reasons Jesus is on the cross because of you you put him there I put him there that's why he died I crucified the Son of God my sins he humbled himself this eternal Son of God who dwells in inapproachable glorious light he humbled himself and took flesh became helpless in a bay in a manger in a cradle could do nothing for himself is dependent upon Joseph and upon Mary to care for him there is the Son of God made himself nothing for me for you took my place bore my sins bore the wrath of God against my sins so that the incarnation stands dear congregation this morning at the very center of human history in fact at the very center of your history personally you were all we will all render a future account in light of the cross what did you do with the cross of Jesus what did you do with the Son of God? How do you believe? How do you think? Did you believe? And I don't mean, yes, with your lips you say, I believe. Do you live your profession? Is it your life what you say you believe? Has there been a change? Because the results of our sin are death and destruction. And so Jesus takes upon himself the guilt and the penalty that was ours. He dies our death so that we might have his life can he give us life yes he rose from the dead because he's the son of god he's god he saves sinners right 
That's why the incarnation is necessary, because God has a people, like he told Joseph, whom he will save. He shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's the gospel. That's the cross. That's why Jesus came. That's what I believe at Christmas time. That's the good news of Christmas. I mean, isn't that what the angelic chorus sang about? That unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, let's go and see this thing that's been revealed to us. The shepherd said. I want you to notice in this text all the times that little word will occurs. So look for me, look with me at verse 31. You will conceive. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see how many times the word will? This is what he's going to accomplish. This is what this person who is going to be born, this son to be born to Mary, this is what he will do. He will be like this. In other words, these are the facts that Gabriel gives to Mary about Jesus to be born. So notice verse 31 through 33. They simply convey the fact that the Old Testament scriptures have spoken already long ago about him. How do we know it's the Old Testament scriptures? Because it talks about the fact that he will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. That kingdom idea that began in the Old Testament will come to fruition in the New Testament. Not a physical kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom which is within us. This is what the Son of God is going to do. And by the way, he's not just another son of David, like Joseph and all of the line back to David. He's not just another son of David, he's the son of David. The only true son of David. He's the shepherd king. He's the savior promised from the Old Testament to come into this world. This is Jesus. This is what Gabriel's telling Mary. And I say to all of you this morning, including myself, that's what I must believe and know and love and treasure and live my life in the light of it. You'll notice he, he is called by Gabriel, he is the Son of the Most High. Do you know that that phrase, the Son of the Most High, the Most High is a divine title in Scripture? In fact, Melchizedek brought out wine and bread. Do you remember when Abraham returned from uh, rescuing Lot and defeating the king Kedileoma and those kings, Sodom and Gomorrah? And he came bearing bread and wine and he was said to be the priest of the Most High God. You know that the demons in the life of Jesus' ministry, that when Jesus was on earth, the demons always seemed to refer to him as the Son of the Most High. What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? That Most High phrase, title, is a divine title for God himself. So Gabriel is saying, verse 32, he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. That's how you'll see his greatness. Now you know Jesus, the greatness of Jesus is not like Alexander the Great. Oh, he was great, wasn't he? I mean, he rampaged through the ancient world. 
He overthrew kingdoms. His father Philip of Macedon was mild compared to Alexander the Great. He ruled the ancient world. Ruled it in such a way that Greek became the common language of all the ancient world. Even in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. So 300 years before Jesus lives this man, this Greek man, Alexander the Great. And yet he's gone by the time he's, he's young because he's ruined his life. That's not the greatness of Jesus. Oh no, Alexander can only rule over earthly kingdoms. Jesus not only rules all earthly kingdoms because he's the son of God and the ruler of all the kings of the earth, as Psalm 2 says, but he rules over your heart and mine. He rules in my heart, in my life. He is my savior. He is my sovereign. That's how his greatness is seen. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Verses 1 or verse 4. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand forever. Or, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But in Psalm 110 and verse 2, it says this. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Whose mighty scepter? The other Lord in the passage. The Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord says... The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Did you know that all of us were born enemies of Jesus? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice who does he die for? Enemies. Not friends. Enemies. Sinners, right? Because Jesus is absolutely sovereign and Jesus is glorious in his majesty and his power is immense. There is none that can hide from Jesus Christ. There is none who can escape Jesus Christ. He rules over a kingdom that is forever and ever recognized as the kingdom of Jacob, of the house of Jacob, a spiritual rule in the hearts of his people, not a physical rule. No, the next time Jesus comes in glory and great power is to save his people finally and fully and completely and is to bring wrath and judgment on those who do not confess and acknowledge him. No, it's a rule of grace and a rule of truth. You see, that's what happens to a Christian when you become a Christian. You know the truth. But it's grace that has opened your eyes and brought you to comprehend what God has done for you. So that Jacob's God is your God and my God. This is a kingdom, as Paul says, of righteousness, of joy, and of peace from the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14. And he is, notice, look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, in light of that work of the Spirit, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Now let me ask you, who is holy? Only God is holy. He makes men and women holy. But they are not holy intrinsically. They are not holy in essence. Only God is absolutely holy. He is called the Son of God. Just to distinguish Him from the Father, who is God, and from the Holy Spirit, who is God. He's the beloved Son. His majesty is the same as the Father, and is the same as the Spirit. 
He is divine. He is eternal. Gabriel says, Mary, this is the one who's coming into the world to save sinners. This is the person. Can such news be really true for me in the 21st century? Can it be true for you? It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Can this, true, may this news be true for you? Remember, nothing is impossible with God. He saves sinners. He saves them. Well, what must you do? Well, you have to respond to that. You have to, you have to respond to that. Look at Mary's response, verse 38. <clears throat> Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's her response. Number one, I'm the servant of the Lord. Number two, let it happen just as you have said. So notice these things. Number one, there is an acknowledgement and an acquiescence by Mary. I am your servant. Do as you please. I'm just a doulos. I'm a bondservant, a slave. So I eagerly submit and I willingly submit to what you've said, Gabriel. Let God do it, right? She believes the message. And she urges, secondly, that there be an acceptance she ex or that she accepts what God has said. Let it be just as you have said. Now I want you to notice here, it is Mary believing God, not Gabriel. Because Gabriel is just a messenger. He's just another servant with a message. And she believes God. This is God's will for her life. Now I dare say Mary woke up that morning and never gave a single thought to what would transpire. Never thought that by the end of the day her life would be irrevocably changed because of God. You see, God can change you, change me, because nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. So God is her Savior. God is her Sovereign. Look what she says, 47, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices. Verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So the question is, how can I believe this? How can I be like Mary this morning? Right? Well, number one, I must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I must believe that that Son of God that the Bible talks about came into this world to save sinners, to give his life, to die for me in my place. I must believe that. I must believe it in such a way that I recognize my life is no longer the same. will never be the same. Tomorrow, it's different. From this day forth, Christ has saved me. I believe the gospel. I believe the good news. That's the first thing. I must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The second thing, I must surrender and submit to this Jesus. Who is this person? Because he's God. He's the Lord. How do I submit to him? How do I surrender to him? I look upon him as my substitute, as my sacrifice. That's why he came. It's not just about a baby in a manger. It's about a cross where a horrible death occurred. Unique death. 
the death of the Son of God for me. That's what I submit to, that this eternal God became flesh to do that on the cross for me. So I give him all that I am. I believe you died for me, Lord Jesus Christ, in my place. Thirdly, that means I have to go to the cross. You cannot get into heaven without the cross. You cannot bypass heaven. You cannot, I mean, bypass the cross. You cannot go around it and say, well, I'll be a good person. I'll go to church more regularly. I'll read my Bible more. I'll give more money. Those things save no one. Faith alone justifies. And faith in Christ Jesus alone is that which justifies. A faith that is given to us because we're destitute spiritually and bankrupt. Cannot choose these things. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Now you either believe that or you don't believe that. Or perhaps you say, ah but, ah but, ah but, there are no buts. This is God's word to us. So I must believe like Mary. I must surrender. Behold, I'm your servant, Lord. Let it be to me just as you have said in your word about this salvation. That's what Jesus has done for me. Came into this world to die. That's Christmas. Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Thessalonians 5. Are you a sinner? Because I am. I'm a great one. But praise God, he saved me 51 years ago. You must be born again, was the message I heard. You, Russ Atmore, must be born again. And I went home and confessed my sins and repented of them and trusted Jesus as my righteousness for eternity. What are you going to say to God when you get to heaven? Why should God even open the doors to heaven to you? There's only one answer. Jesus and Jesus alone is my righteousness before the Father. That's what I need to know. And that's what I must believe. Why? Can it be true for me? Yes, because nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, how we thank you for the Christmas message, the Advent message, the incarnation of the Son of God into this world for us. And we say thank you, Father, for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. That's why he came in the flesh to lay down his life in our place. So we praise you and we thank you. Help us each one to know this, to be true for us, to rejoice in sins forgiven, to know that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. Oh, do a great work in each of us this morning. Change us, save us by your grace, that we might know the truth of these things. And thank you, Father, that you've given us these things in your word, and your word, you send it forth, and it never returns to you void. It always accomplishes the purpose you send it forth for. So we pray this morning that you would send forth your word into our hearts, that we might believe it and live in the light of it. And how we thank you for the Lord Jesus, your Son, who came into this world to die for us and to save us. Help us to remember that this Christmas season we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.